morning and welcome to Sunday Worship at Calvary Baptist Church. Hi, I'm Paul Thompson, pastor. So glad that you've joined us. Right now we're in a series from the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we see the final and ultimate revelation of God to us in the person of Jesus Christ, His Son. Over these next several weeks together, we'll be looking at the beauty, the majesty, and the worth of Jesus. I pray that as you join us, God reveal Himself to you, and as He does, you'd be inspired to, to love Him and to trust Him, to obey Him, to follow Him with the rest of your life. Love to invite you to come worship with us in person, 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We gather at 901 Montezuma Avenue. Again, we'd love to have you. Meanwhile, as you're listening today, I pray that God would speak to you. I pray that you'd be encouraged or challenged or convicted, or that God would move your heart in some way towards Him. If you've got a need you'd like to share with us, a prayer request, or maybe a decision that you're making or you would like to make, or just that you'd like to talk with a pastor or an elder, please contact us. You can text us or call 334-708-0513. You can also email us at info at calvarydothan.com. We'd love to hear from you. I pray that God speaks to you today and that you have a fresh encounter with Jesus Christ. heaven's throne acquainted with our sorrow to trade the dead we owe your suffering for our freedom the
tell you something that weighs heavily on me, increasingly so. It seems like every time I turn around and I find a new story or a new testimony or a new tweet or social media posting of someone's deconversion story. There are songs that we don't sing in worship now because the person who penned those words has abandoned the faith, claim that they are, no, they are no longer Christian. I mean, we see these things with increasing frequency. And it's not just those pseudo-celebrities, those religious leaders that we may know little about that we see deconverting. What hits much closer to home are the stories that we know personally. You know, those people, some of them are friends, some of them are family members, that once claimed to be Christian and walked away from it all. And now, um, with a revised sort of history, personal history, they'll look back and say it was never real or it's not true for them or they've been enlightened or whatever it may be. And we see these again and again. And then in far greater frequency than those stories, people who would be so bold as to outright denounce the faith they once claimed to hold are the far greater numbers of people some of whom sit among us on Sunday morning, some of whom are us listening this morning, that if we're really honest about all this, we're not terribly interested. There's just a general malaise about the whole thing. I mean, we'll sing songs about our salvation, and we'll read those scriptures, and we'll believe them that Jesus was real, that he actually did the things the Bible says that he did, that what he did on the cross was actually effective for taking away sins. I mean, we believe that salvation story such as it is. But as far as any genuine, comprehensive, lasting effect on us, it's just not there. I mean, if Christ saved us in order that we might know the Father and know the Father's love and love the Father, if the great twin commands of Scripture in the Old and New Testament alike are these, that we would love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, our soul, our strength, and our mind, then we just got to be honest and say, listen, I, I believe the facts but it just doesn't resonate in my heart. It's just not, it's just not me. And when I think about that, that's, that just general sense of I don't love this. I don't love the things of God. I don't really love Scripture. I don't love to pray. I don't love uh, the idea of giving up my life to do the things God wants me to do. I, I can't even say I really love church, etc. What's the answer to that? I mean, we've got to get to the root cause of that, right? And I'm not sure there are any more than two particular answers that would ever really, really apply, really fit here. The hardest one to acknowledge or come to face-to-face -face is this one. What if I'm not really saved? What if I've never really been converted? You know, what if I just simply agreed to some facts and things, but i, I got to be real here, it hasn't done much in me or to me or for me. I think it's 2 Timothy chapter 3. Those first several verses where Paul writes to a young pastor protege, and he tells him about the sort of times he's going to minister in and the sort of people he'll be ministering to. And as Sam shared just a moment ago, that statement by Mark Dever certainly resonates with me, the great pastoral work of the church being sanctification. Well, here's what God's Spirit told Paul to write. He said, in the last days, there will come times of stress. You agree? Times of stress? 
He says men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. They'll hold the form of religion, but they'll deny the power of it. Now, that's a pretty sobering statement. In the last days, we should see increasingly the love of many growing cold, the scriptures say, and even those that profess a faith, they hold to a sort of religious form, there's no power in it. There's There's no joy in it. There's no pleasure in it. There's no satisfaction in it. There's no effect in it. No transformation from it. In other words, we could expect in the last days there would be a lot of churchgoers, a lot of semi-religious people who don't really know God through Christ. They haven't really been redeemed. They're not regenerated. They're not newborn people in Christ who are growing up into Christ. If that's you, what's your response? Because for many of you, and I've had this conversation with some, you say, but I did that already. I prayed that prayer. I remember when I was whatever, you name the date, you name the place, you name the setting, you say, someone asked me, do you want to go to heaven when you die? I said, yes, because the alternative sounds too grim. And they said, if you want to go to heaven when you die, I want you to pray this prayer after me. And I said exactly what they said. And when I got finished saying that prayer, they said, good, now you're saved. So what am I supposed to do now? Peter wrote that we're born again through the living and abiding word of God, 1 Peter 1, 23. You want to truly be saved? You want to evaluate your own salvation? Then here's my challenge for you this morning. Start pouring over the word of God. Start going into the depths of its pages and seeing what it says about you or about your life. At the very least, I would say don't be satisfied. Don't be complacent where you are, but cry out to the Lord to change your heart. Because all real salvation is a heart change. It's not just agreeing with the information that's presented to you. It's not just accepting the creed or the code of conduct that's common to the rest of us. There's got to be a real change of heart. Pray that God would open your eyes so that you might see. Pray that God might soften what's become hardened. Pray that God might show what you haven't understood. Pray that God would do the miracle that he promises those who receive that second covenant. The covenant of a new heart, a heart of flesh that replaces a heart of stone. So if you don't feel it, if you don't want it, if you don't love it, don't be satisfied in that condition. And don't think that you have no choice in it. Don't think, well, this is just my curse. This is just how it's going to be for me. I know some people have it, some people don't. Some people want it, some people don't. Some of you, you know, you've got it, I just don't. Listen, don't be satisfied in that. Or perhaps the other condition It's just simply that you've allowed your heart to grow cold towards God and the things of God. And I know there are a lot of factors that can contribute to that. I mean, life is hard. As Paul wrote to Timothy, things are stressful, and there are plenty of things that will tax you and test you. Some of you in this room have suffered great loss, pain, betrayal, abandonment, hardship. People have disappointed you, let you down, and worse. You've gone through things that cause you to wonder and doubt and struggle. So what will you do if it's just grown cold in you? And you know that. I don't think the remedy is too very different from you than it is for a person who doesn't know Christ. It's the word of God that brings life. And to commit yourself to pouring yourself into it and let it be poured out into you, asking God the whole time in desperation, God, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to feel like this. I don't want to be cold like this. 
God, I'm asking you to change this in me. I'm asking you, if there's, a, if there's an ember left burning, that you would stir it up into flame. If, if there is a part of me that's alive to you, then I pray that you'd bring me fully alive to you and bring new life to you. The same Christ that brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light can take away that sort of heavy weight of darkness. It just hovers over you. But again, don't be content with that condition. But pray that God will renew your heart so you might know him, enjoy him, and love him. That's the purpose. I want us to pray together this morning, and we'll look into our text for today. Father God, we are dependent upon you to do the work of supernatural change in us. That doesn't preclude our obedience, our honesty, our repentance, our right responses to you. None of those things. But Father, to hear at the point of real change, to hear in the center of our hearts, to hear in a way that affects our real thinking, that that comes from you. That's a work of your spirit. And to see things that we ought to see and to see them clearly and rightly, that, that comes from you. And to stir something in us that's not there right now, oh, Father, we're desperate for you to do that. And so, Father, for those far from you, for those indifferent to you, for those disconnected from you, for those who are not in Christ at all, who can come to you today, Father, I pray that you would move. By your Holy Spirit, move. Move our thinking, move our feeling, move our wanting, move our understanding. Move our will and ability, Father, so that we might come to you, return to you, be renewed in you today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 10 is our text, and it's a meaty one. We're going to look at the first 18 verses of this and then see what God's saying to us in Hebrews 10. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can ever, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he, Jesus, said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering, he had perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Powerful, beautiful contrast of the old covenant. The old covenant marked by a system of laws and a system of commensurate commensurate sacrifices for those who violate those laws, and a new covenant, which is marked by the work of Christ for us. Now, when we look at this in its right context, this is an important point for us to understand Theologically, and and by the way, when I say theologically, I don't want you to tune out and think this is just the academic part of the message, because theology is always necessary for right behavior and belief. Theology is always practical. Wrong theology always leads to wrong thinking, wrong beliefs, and wrong actions. Right theology leads to the opposite of that. So the right theology of this is to recognize that we're looking at these two covenants. What Jesus did in the old covenant, which we've learned more and more about as we've gone through Hebrews, is this. It's not a question of right versus wrong. It's a question of good versus better. So when Jesus says, these are not things that you desired, but later in that same passage it says, but these were matters of the law, is that a contrary statement? No, what he's saying is these are not things that in the tense of that word you continue to desire. This was not the permanent plan of God for mankind, that people should continue in patterns and cycles of sin, repetitive patterns of bad behavior, Reminded of those sins regularly by going to the temple to have a sacrifice offered for them. And then once per year in the high holiest of days, which we would call Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement today, that a sacrifice would be offered for their sins. This was never intended by God to be permanent. It was intended by God to be a shadow. A shadow of something better. We begin to see the form of it. We begin to see the idea of it. We begin to understand a bit of the substance of it. That's what it is to be a shadow, the old versus the new. So when we look at that, we say the law was not wrong. It was simply inadequate. If the law could make you a new creation, then it would be adequate. If the law, in reminding you of sin, leading you to repentance, could set you free of sin so that you did not sin anymore, and therefore no more sacrifices were needed for sin, it would be adequate, but it's not. This passage tells us sacrifices have to be offered continually. Why? Why did he have to keep offering sacrifices? Because people kept sinning. Sin remained. Even though sacrifices continued, it didn't stop people from sinning. And sacrifices have the ability, as the passage makes clear, to remind us of sin. I mean, anytime that animal is slaughtered, anytime that sacrifice is burned, anytime the smell and the smoke is around, people understand the reminder of sin, but it's not removing their sin from them right? And you know how human nature is. Um, We grow cynical or calloused or indifferent towards things that we see over and over and over again, and we simply start going through the motions. I mean, when was the last time you sat in a worship service, a Sunday morning service, and genuinely felt the convicting hand of God, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, where you felt under the weight of God? It's easy for us to become accustomed to, familiar with, even indifferent towards things that we do over and over again. And surely that was the case for Israel during the sacrificial system. And though it reminded them of sin, the reality is that sin is not something that's primarily outside of us. 
Sin is primarily inside of me. It's born out of my desires. And I'm pursuing those desires. And when temptation comes along, that temptation is nothing more than an opportunity to do what I already desire to do. So temptation, so sin is not this outside entity that I'm neither for or against, that I have really no thoughts about until some moment some great temptation falls upon me and then I choose that thing outside of me. Sin is what's coming out of me all the time and this system is not changing that. It's not going that deep. You see, ultimately, the Old Testament, which tells us the Old Covenant, and not the Old Testament verses, not Genesis through Malachi, that's not what is of no value to us. It's that covenant which is not valuable to us anymore. It's inadequate. Why? Because it can't, in the words of the Holy Spirit given to the writer of Hebrews, it cannot perfect us. It cannot perfect us. In simplest of terms, we would say it does something, and it does something that God prescribed, that the law required. It does something, but it doesn't do enough. It doesn't take you far enough. And I guess the best analogy I could give, as insufficient as this analogy would be, it would be as if our whole religious system were built on this. It were built simply on a set of rules and regulations That if you agree to comply and you begin to do these things, then you'll be satisfactory to us. But it was not built on a new heart, a new mind, a new power, a new ability, a new birth, a Christ who was crucified and rose again, whose spirit now lives in you. Take all those things out, and it's all just human effort. How can I understand the right things and agree with them? How can I try to do the right things and work hard at them? And that's what my salvation is or my faith is. That would be like the old system. Yeah, that can take you somewhere. We can all try harder. We can all work at being better. We, all, we can all be better rule keepers. We can all study more. But will that change the heart of us? The answer is no. It can't take us all the way. It can't perfect us. So the passage says, consequently. So as a result, since this can't take you where God wants you to be, which is not just in heaven, by the way. Heaven is just the place where it all happens, the setting, the new heavens and new earth. What God is really doing is bringing you to himself. The great good of the gospel, the good news is God himself, that when you repent of your sins and when you turn to Christ for salvation, what you get is God. All the rest are the benefits of God. Consequently, Christ, who's the mediator, we've learned, he's not just the one who goes between us and the Father, to mediate the new covenant. He's the source or the provider of the new covenant because it's a new covenant in his blood. We just recognize that again this morning as we took the Lord's Supper. Christ is the mediator, provider of the covenant, does something for us. Look at this threefold promise. Did you catch that as I was reading the text earlier? I'll put my laws on their hearts, I'll write them on their minds, and I'll remember their sins no more. That's pretty awesome. That's what the new covenant does. So what do we know? We know these things to be true. Christ is sufficient for the removal of our sins. We talked about this last week. The ability, the supernatural, God-only ability to forget our sins. As far as the east is from the west, so does he separate our sins from us. Christ alone is sufficient to do that. So on the altar of Christ's sacrifice, sins are fully paid for and they are forgotten by the great judge, God himself. Christ is also successful at restoring us to a right relationship with God. He's always bringing us to the Father. That's the work of Christ. We're going to see that in the coming text in this book of Hebrews. The work of Christ always pulling us towards the Father. 
so that as he saves us, he's delivering us from the outside of the camp. He's delivering us from being an enemy of the people of God and of God himself. He's rescuing us from darkness into the kingdom of light. He's transferring us from that kingdom into his kingdom. We go from spiritual orphans and enemies to adopted sons and daughters. This is all through Christ. And here's the big point of today. Christ is sanctifying all those who are his, readying us for heaven. He promises to do that. The work of salvation includes him sanctifying us, making us ready for heaven. You see, I guess if I were to summarize everything I read to you so far, it would be with this simple statement. What the law can't, Christ can. That's the point. What the law can't, Christ can. It doesn't make the law bad. It makes it insufficient. It makes Christ better, infinitely better. Now I want to make just one really critical point. I want to make it in several ways today, and I hope this is clear. And I subtitled this section of the message, if you're a note taker, I have my notes in front of you, Sanctification and a Truncated Gospel. You know the idea of truncated, something that's been curtailed, uh, something that's been cut short, something that's missing a critical element, truncated. It's not right. It's not the same. It doesn't work. It doesn't carry you to its intended destination. Let's make sure that our gospel is not a truncated gospel. Let's make sure that we think about what we believe to save us, what we're living under the authority of, what we're telling other people is not curtailed, not cut short, not truncated. What is sanctification? Sam did a great job explaining that to you already, so I don't want to belabor the point of definition. From a technical aspect, the Baptist Catechism, something not many of us are probably familiar with, which closely mirrors the Westminster Shorter Catechism, says this, according to question 38, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. If you're simply Googling a definition of sanctification, you're going to find things like this, to be made holy, to hallow. To make sacred. Let me give you my working definition of sanctification. Not different from those, but the application of that definition to your life and to mine. This is my operative definition. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit whereby you and I are fitted for heaven. We're fitted for heaven. Have you ever thought about that for a moment? That God right now in your life, if you belong to Christ, is fitting you for heaven. I've been reading these devotionals this week that, where my research led me and down these rabbit trails and paths of people writing on sanctification. And it's interesting how many similar thoughts I saw expressed in these devotions. Things like this. Why is it that someone who shows little interest in God or the things of God thinks that they're going to enjoy being with God forever and ever? We care little about God's presence now. Why we think, will we think heaven will be enjoyable to us when it is all about God's presence? When knowing God, understanding God, following God, loving God is the purpose of our salvation, and we pursue none of those things now, what do we think we're going to enjoy about heaven when heaven is about God? God right now through sanctification is fitting us. Consider this text. To me, it's a, it's a landmark text on sanctification. And how it fits with salvation and fitting us for heaven. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25 through 27. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That we know, those are facts. 
He loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. There couldn't be a clear passage of scripture in all the New Testament about the purpose of God and our salvation that carries us all the way to the end. The Bible doesn't say that Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, simply so she could die one day, living however she pleases from the moment of rebirth until the moment of death, and get into heaven. It says that she can be sanctified, rightly fitted for heaven. That's the work of Christ in us. Let's back up a little bit, though. We need to widen out the angle of our view lens this morning. Before zeroing in on sanctification, let's talk about salvation for a moment. He said, now this is remedial. Come on, Paul, this is, this is as basic as it gets. Well, let's consider it for a moment. When we say, you need to be saved, when we give a testimony that says, I am saved, when we sing songs about salvation, what are we talking about? What does it mean? Now, on the most basic level, we would say salvation is something like this. Salvation means to be delivered or to be rescued. And that would be technically correct, to be delivered or to be rescued. Um, the most common application of that would be uh, to be delivered or rescued from our sin. And on that point, I would agree, because our fundamental problem that creates an eternal disconnect from God and evokes the right judgment of God for, our, for, for us and what we've done is our sin. That is the issue. And until we repent of our sin and come to Christ, until we repent with humility, then we still are going to face the consequences for our sin. I read a lot of church websites and articles and blogs, and it's amazing to me how many times people write of salvation without writing about repentance. Or they write about God's grace and how good is God's grace and how vast is God's grace and how great is God's mercy. All those things are, which are true, but they're rendered invaluable unless we also understand the law of God and the holiness of God. What worth to you is their grace if you don't understand law? If you don't understand, apart from the grace and mercy of God, you surely will die in your sins and suffer eternally for them. Until you understand the great weight and burden of the law because of sin, you will never begin to understand or appreciate the great wealth of mercy and grace. And so certainly salvation is that. But the Bible speaks of our salvation going far beyond simply rescuing you from hell. Okay, so please hear this. When we talk about being saved, this is far more than a rescue from eternal hell. There's a salvation unto life. Christ has saved us from the old life. We're told to put on the new life. We're told if we're in Christ, we're new creations and old things are passed away. We're told every day to put off the old and to put on the new. We've been called to a fullness of life. These are all parts of our salvation. We understand what we're saved from. We're saved from sin and death and hell. Do we as well understand what we're saved for? When we talked about justification, we referenced Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And this is a gift of God, not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. But to what end are we saved? To a life of good. A life of good works, which God determined in advance that we would do. It's not simply that moment of salvation we call conversion. It's the life that conversion births us into. We're saved for something. We're saved for a life that honors Christ and increasingly becomes like his life. 
And of course, we know we're also saved to something. We're saved to something. Ephesians 5 described a bit of that for us. We're saved unto glory. We're saved unto everlasting life. We're saved unto everlasting joy in the presence of our Father. So we would say rightly, and you've heard this phrase used before, I assume, for many of you, our salvation is both past tense. We have been saved if we have been converted and come to Christ by faith. It's present tense. We are being saved as we're being remade, reshaped into the image of Christ, who is now prepping us by his spirit in us for heaven. And we will be saved one day because one day we will shake off the shackles of sin and death and pain and sorrow and everything of this old life in order to embrace and enjoy forever the new life that God has for us. It's past, present, future. I bet if I was doing a survey and asked people to write down what is your favorite verse in the Bible, I bet I could probably guess the top four or five answers. I would assume for a lot of us, after we've gone past John 3.16, a lot of us are probably listing a verse like Romans 8.28. It's a go-to. It's one that you just you more than hang your theological hat on. You hang your life experiences on it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are calling, called according to his purpose. But how can we know that? How can we know that those who love God, those who are called into salvation, how can we know that God is working out everything ultimately for our good because of what follows next? Four. Because. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. How can I know that it's all working for our good? Because before time began, God knew those who would be his. And it was his will that they become like his son, that they grow up. That's called sanctification. In order that Christ might be the firstborn. What does that mean? That he might be the prototype that he might be the original model, that he might be the mold into which we are being poured, Christ. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Because Christ has got it from before time began until time eternal begins. He's got you. That's how you know it's good. And part of that process, just as clear as the foreknowledge of God, just as certain as our ultimate glorification with God, is the process in the middle that's the will of God that we be conformed to his son, that sanctification. So you start to see this clearly, I hope. Salvation, yours, mine, isn't completed at justification. Justification is awesome. It's wonderful. It's a fantastic, grace-filled reality that God announces us not guilty. But our salvation simply begins there. That's not where salvation is completed, that's where salvation begins, which then begs this question, and this is what I want you to hear, and I want you to understand rightly. Can you be justified and not be sanctified? Does God, as he saves those who come to him, does he ever justify some people and not sanctify them? Can that happen? Does that happen according to God's, God's word? In other words, we, could we say, I get that becoming like Christ, any term we want to use for that, sanctification, the process of discipleship, growing up into him, as Ephesians 4 describes, who is the head Christ, becoming fully like him, as Romans 8 describes, I get that that's optimal, 
but is it ultimately optional? And my answer to that, which I assume you can presume already, is absolutely not. But my challenge to your thinking, to the thinking of the church, as it has been for years and years, churches like ours, is functionally the answer to that is yes. We may not say it outright. We certainly can't declare it with any scriptural basis, but the way we've taught and acted and expected of people is this. It's best that you become like Christ. But if you don't, technically that's okay as long as you're justified. It's optimal that you grow up in him who is the head, Christ, the fullness of all things. It's optimal that you do that. But if you, if you stay a baby your whole life and nothing ever changes about you, as long as you pray that prayer, as long as you believe these facts in your head, then it's technically you're okay. It's, it's optimal, but it's optional. The Bible teaches the opposite of that. You know, the last few weeks in communion, we have intentionally said, wow, we've never done communion every single week before. And it's intentional so that you look at the effective work of Christ. So these aren't abstract thoughts, concepts. Jesus, the sacrifice. And Hebrews spend so much time repeating these themes of the sacrificial work of Christ. Christ, our high priest. Christ, our perfect sacrifice. Christ, our mediator. Christ, our offering. All those things. Do we understand what they do for us? Well, we've looked at these components of our great salvation. You remember chapter 2? The great salvation you should not hear. What are those components? Regeneration, the birth of new life, in desperation, in humility, we turn to God and God gives us mercy. And in mercy, we are reborn. We looked at redemption. Redemption is a great price Christ paid for us by his own sacrifice for our sins to rescue us. Justification, the act of God by which you and I are declared not guilty. We're acquitted. We're forgiven. We're declared to be in right standing with God because Jesus, our substitute, stands in our stead. And we receive the treatment of Christ. We're justified. And today, sanctification, the fruit of this new life, the evidence that this new life actually exists in us, what a union with Christ looks like as his Holy Spirit, who is the mark of salvation, the seal that guarantees our salvation, works mightily in us to prep us for the ultimate fruit of our salvation, glorification. That's sanctification. And while you and I can distinguish between the different aspects of our salvation, and we can study them theologically, and we say, I know what justification is, and regeneration is, and sanctification is, and glorification is, while we, we can distinguish between them, we cannot ever separate them. They are part of one salvation. One work of God by which he calls us and then ultimately calls us home. And you can't break those into separate parts or else you lose the gospel. Consider a few of these texts. 1 Corinthians 1.29 Because of him, you're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Such were some of you, talking of the old life, all the list of sins Recounted there, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Or Acts 20, verse 32. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
And even the passage we looked at today, when it speaks of sanctification, it unironically speaks of sanctification as something that has happened and something that is happening. How can it both be true? Well, sanctification is to be made holy, then we know that we stand before God one day, not in our own righteousness or holiness, but in Christ. So in that sense, we're declared holy. But it doesn't mitigate the work of being made holy, which also must happen for those who are in Christ. So we're also being sanctified. One of the great preachers of, I say, the modern era, the last, well, since the Apostle Paul, how about that? One of the great preacher, theologian, evangelists, preacher that Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, most admired, George Whitfield. George Whitfield was said to have been asked after a revival meeting in which he spoke, how many people were saved last night? His response, I don't know. We should know more in about six months. Has that been our way of thinking? Are we waiting to see the evidence of someone who has the new birth? Someone who has a change of life and heart? See, the truth is this. True conversion is not an isolated experience. It's not something that's cut off from the rest of our salvation. The true conversion is that moment by which we enter into the new life. A life of discipleship. A life of sanctification. In fact, I would say this. There is no true conversion without sanctification. You think about birth. Every birth is followed subsequently by life. That's what's normal and natural. No matter how short that life may be, life may be brief, or it may be exceedingly long, but the natural course of things is birth leads to life. In the same way, the new birth spiritually leads to new life. There is no new birth that doesn't create new life. Someone who claims to have a new birth but still lives the old life is living a lie. In a book called Paul, the Spirit, and the People of God, Gordon Fee said this. Now let this one hit you hard. Too long the church has understood conversion as having only to do with the beginning point. Biblically understood, conversion has to do with making disciples of former pagans like ourselves. Our Lord did not say, go and make converts, but go and make disciples. In the long run, only disciples are converts. And that's the challenge of this text. So how is this made possible? What's the promise of the new covenant, better than the old, that makes that possible? Well, the Holy Spirit comes in, according to Hebrews chapter 10. And he fulfills a promise that the Old Covenant, or that the Old Testament, promises in the new covenant. That when this happens, when the new covenant comes, he's going to change our heart. He's going to come in and change who we are at the core. This is about our desires. This is about our desires. Is he changing my desires? Henry Martin was a brilliant missionary, Bible translator. When speaking of his own conversion four years after the fact, he said, the work is real. I can no more doubt it than I can my own existence. The whole current of my desires is altered. I am walking quite another way, though I am incessantly stumbling in that way. Is that not a bit of our testimony, of your testimony? It's not to say that we walk perfectly, circumspectly, in perfect holiness now. 
But it is to say at the core of us, there's a desire to be different than who we were, to be like Christ. That desire is a mark of genuine conversion. He comes in and he writes on our hearts. He changes us at the heart level. The Holy Spirit also changes our minds. He comes in and changes our minds. What did he write in, this, in, in Hebrews chapter 10 about our, about our great salvation? What did he do? He says, I'll put my laws on their hearts, what I want from them. Desire to be what I want from them and be like I want them to be. And I'll write them on their minds. That's about perception. That's about understanding. That's about grasping. God, I see now you, who you are, who I am, what you want, how to live. I begin to understand and I begin to want, I begin to desire. So what are the results of this? The results of this are not perfection, but being perfected. I'm wanting things I never wanted. And I'm not wanting the things I used to want. And I'm seeing things I never saw. And I'm understanding things I never did. And in this desire and in this insight, this perception, is also coupled God's Holy Spirit, which empowers me. So as Paul wrote to the Philippians, it's God at work in you. It's God at work in you. And he's giving you the will and the ability to do that which pleases him. It's God at work in me. So what's my responsibility in this? Because you certainly could spend hours searching out the subject of sanctification. Is this something God does? Is this something I do? Is this a manward work, a Godward work? And the answer is yes. Because your purpose in it, your responsibility in it, is obedience. It's faithfulness. It's active. It's this is Jesus when he called those first followers of him. Come after me. Come and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Take up the God purpose I've given you. Take up the life aim I've given you. Stop loving this world. Start learning to love me. Come and follow after me in faithfulness and obedience. Here's the challenge for you this morning. Just some questions to help us evaluate and think personally. Is my Christian life marked by transformation? This is not an absolute word, by the way. Is it marked by the ongoing work of transformation? Is God doing something in me to make me less who I used to be and more who he wants me to be? It's what you've believed about Christ. The facts, the information, the life, death, burial, resurrection, the promise of a return, is that producing the Christ life in you? In other words, is what I hold up here, is it changing anything in here that is exposed out here? You see what I'm saying? Are these just things I, I believe? Like I believe a man walked on the moon. Are they transforming me? What's the best evidence of your salvation? What's the best evidence that you've got? All those things point to his Christ working in me. I leave you with this thought. I remember early on in, in my preaching tenure here, so this would have been oh, nine, nine and a half years ago now, so I'm coming up on ten. Um, one of the people had expressed uh, rather strongly about not liking the preaching that I was doing, and uh, this person's words were these, he preaches to all of us like we're lost. He preaches to us like we're lost. I wish he would move on from that. 
I don't say this judgmentally or gleefully, that person's not here anymore, but do you wonder why sometimes someone like me will preach to you like you're lost? Can I give you some personal insight? I have a personal mandate. Now, this is not supernatural. This is not me receiving golden tablets or anything like that or seeing a burning bush. This is a passage of scripture that God burned into me long ago that began, began to be the mark of how I approach ministry. And so the defining task of ministry for me is this. It's Colossians 1.28. Let me read it to you. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So I'm going to continue to preach to everyone with the aim that everyone will be mature in Christ. That's the aim. So I guess what Mark Dever said about the great pastoral work of the church being sanctification is true after all. And so I preach that to you today because that's God's aim for you, that you be fully mature in Christ, that you be ready for heaven. Not that you get in by the skin of your teeth, but that you exhibit the growing Christ life. And my challenge to you today is simple, and I go back to the very beginning. If there's no desire for you for these things, to know God, to love God, to enjoy God, to talk about God, to experience God, then only one of two things could be true of you. You don't really know him yet. Or the love and cares and stress and sins of this world have so calloused you, so hard you towards him that you don't sense him anymore. Either way, the approach is not very different. What are you going to do today? Would you pray with me? Father, I've asked you today to move in us by your Holy Spirit. But Father, when I say and pray and hope and expect that you would move, I know the evidence of your moving us is that we move, that we respond, that we do something, that we repent or we cry out to you or, or we just reject it, that we just, we're so frustrated by it or angered by it that we say no to it. But Father, we will know that you have moved when we move. So Father, move us. I pray that there's someone here today that would embrace this new covenant, this new promise that you give us. It's not by our own works. It's not by our own self-righteousness. It's not by our personal goodness. It's not by all of our efforts. It's not by becoming so religious that we finally meet your standard. Your standard is holy. Your standard is you. Our only hope is Christ. And Father, I pray they would throw themselves on the mercy of Christ, realizing like I once did, like so many in this room once did, we are great sinners, but you are a greater Savior. Forgive me and give me a new life. Not just get me to heaven one day, but give me a new life. I don't want this old life anymore. I turn from it and I turn to you. Give me a new life, I pray. Put your spirit in me and change me. Father, I pray someone would do that today. I pray for that one who's gone through the motions in the past, maybe years ago would get very honest with themselves and with you and say, I know this has not done anything in me. God, change my heart. Give me a new heart. Change me. Give me these things. Give me these new desires. Put your spirit in me. God, I don't want to be this way. I don't want to live this way. Father, anyone that's grown cold and different, Father, would do the same. Oh, God, shake us out of this lethargy, this complacency, this malaise. 
draw us towards the Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening today to our Sunday worship at Calvary Baptist Church. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know that you're listening today. You can email us at info at calvarydothan.com or you can find us at at Calvary Dothan on any of our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Meanwhile, we'd also love to pray for you. If there's anything that we could do to answer a question for you or help you in your spiritual journey, please reach out to us. Whatever your next step is, we want to help you. If you don't have a church home, come and visit us at Calvary Baptist Church at 901 Montezuma Avenue in Dothan. But again, let us hear from you. Uh, We'd love to know that you're here and how we can minister to you better. Take care, and we look forward to worshiping with you again next Sunday.